0: Shalom, shalom, friends. Thanks for being here. And we know others are trickling in and we're thrilled to Congregation Ortzion for their partnership today for Beyond Caging Restorative Justice and Rethinking Safety here with Rabbi Arya Cohen, PhD, who is a professor of rabbinic literature and a former chair of the rabbinics department in the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies. Dr. Cohen has created and taught most of the courses in the rabbinics curriculum over the over the more than two decades of his affiliation with the Ziegler School. His research and scholarship sit at the intersection of Talmud Jewish Jewish ethics and social justice activism. This is present in his teaching, especially his senior seminar, Issues of Justice, a project-based learning course in which students have to develop advocacy-based in Jewish texts on a social justice issue. Very, very important. His latest book, Justice in the City, an argument from the sources of rabbinic Judaism, Emerges from and articulates the same concerns. Very important book. Dr. Cohen is also the rabbi in residence at Ben the Ark Jewish Action, a national social justice organization. In this role, he organizes the Jewish community around issues of immigration justice and restorative justice and mobilizes a multi faith community of clergy and lay people to nonviolent direct action. I had the privilege of joining Rebarie at, a, uh, at an action just a few months ago in LA at a bank, which was very meaningful and well executed on many levels. Dr. Cohen is a co-convener of the Black Jewish Justice Alliance, the BJJA, and a member of Clergy for Black Lives. With Clergy for Black Lives, he co-organized one of the largest memorial demonstrations in downtown Los Angeles after the murder of George Floyd. So friends, thank you for joining us near and far beyond caging restorative justice and rethinking safety.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you, Shmuley. It's always an amazing pleasure to be with you. Um, just talking this morning with a, a mutual friend, um, David Myers, about um, you as being a, a one-person social justice movement in, in Arizona, um, in coalition with an amazing array of people. So it's, it's wonderful to be here with you. Um, and thank you, Pam, for all your your effort um, to make this happen. Um, so let's jump in. Um uh, I wanna spend two minutes reflecting on the following prompt. I wanna, this is kind of a a, a audience participation. thing, So feel free to write or draw using a pen and paper, or if you don't have a pen and paper, just do it on your computer. You're not gonna have to turn it in and there's no grading. Think of a time, here's the prompt. Think of a time that you felt harmed in some way. Think of a time that you felt harmed in some way. What did you need to heal or to move through, or to move forward. So that's the prompt. Think of a time that you felt harmed in some way. What did you need to heal, or to move forward, or to move through? Give you about a minute and a half to think about that. Okay, um, so now to the extent that you feel comfortable in the chat, write one of the things that has helped you move through and heal. If you don't wanna share, you don't have to, but if you, to the extent you feel Comfortable, right? One thing that has helped you move through and heal. Feeling validated or being validated. Very important. Apology from the person who harmed me. Realization that their harm was more about them and their fear or trauma than me. That's very important. Great. So the reason that I wanted to do this is because I want to start thinking, and it's important to think about restorative justice from a person-centered or victim-centered point of view rather than an institutional point of view. So I want to put us in a frame of mind of, of that kind of thinking. Our current criminal legal system is based on a punitive model. If someone commits a crime, whether that is a property crime like theft or a violent crime such as assault, the basic conceptual framework is that the crime was committed against the state, and the state prosecutes the offender and then punishes the offender. It was not always thus. Through the Middle Ages, there was little difference between civil and criminal law. Almost all actions and transgressions were considered civil actions. That is between two or more people, and the recourse was for the victim to sue the transgressor in court. At a certain point, this changed so that crime was seen as an offense against the crown or the state. And therefore, the Crown's representative, a sheriff or officer, was empowered to find the offender, bring them to court, and then the same or another officer prosecuted the offender in the name of the Crown. This is the same as it is today, except that in democracies, the rhetoric has changed so that the prosecutor is called the people. However, despite the fact that the prosecutor is the people, the victim or survivor of the crime has little or no real say in the proceedings. The prosecutor need not check in with the victim or follow their wishes in terms of how or to what extent the transgressor should be prosecuted or punished. So although the rhetoric of closure is often used in regards to bringing someone to justice, the person being brought to justice is brought to justice at the behest of the state. A victim of a crime has very little to say in whether or not a specific crime is investigated or prosecuted. Most of this is up to the district attorney and the police department. The victim now has a chance to speak in court only during the so-called victim impact statement when the victim can describe their experience of the crime and its aftermath. Further, the current system, the punitive justice model or the carceral model is based on unfounded expectations of the efficacy of deterrence and a broken moral calculus which pretends to being able to define the correct amount of retribution while not taking into account the collateral damage to families and communities and the collateral harms of caging itself. We'll speak more about this in a bit, but the point for now is that there is little evidence which backs up the idea that caging people deters others from committing crimes. It is only marginally true even that caging people deters those people themselves from committing crimes. Furthermore, there is no actual algorithm which is morally defensible, which might serve to assign three years of caging rather than five or seven for this or that crime. This is all the more so when we take into account that in addition to the caging itself, there are many other punishments inflicted on those who are incarcerated. Assault and rape in prison, deprivation of medical care, among other things. During COVID, we saw that short sentences could become death sentences. All these are not technically part of the punishment. Moreover, there is both economic and psychological punishment inflicted on the families and communities of the incarcerated. I'm gonna share my screen now. I want to spend a few few minutes here on what our current carceral system looks like, based on the number of people incarcerated and the question of whether that works in any way to reasonably improve public safety. So by the numbers, 2.3 million people are confined nationwide. This includes state and federal prisons, federal and local jails, immigrant detention centers, youth detention centers, or camps and other facilities. Amazingly, of the 731,000 people held in jails, a whopping 76% of them have not been convicted of a crime. They're in jail pretrial and cannot afford bail or have been deemed a flight risk or for other reasons. Drug offenses are the reason that a majority of people are incarcerated in federal prisons. Here you see all the other ways that people end up caged. It is important here to note that ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, detains people in private prisons for violations of immigration law, which are not criminal violations. The Office of Refugee Resettlement holds unaccompanied youth seeking asylum in shelter and secure juvenile facilities. This graphic is just to demonstrate the enormity of this problem. And as we have grown all too accustomed to saying, this is not normal. It's the same for women's incarceration. Then here is the kicker. The recidivism rates for formerly incarcerated persons are mind-boggling. Almost 90% for property crimes such as theft, 85% for drug crimes, more than 80% for public order crimes. In other words, if you had no way to make a living aside from theft before going to jail, jail did not help. If you're an addict prior to jail, apparently jail is not a cure. Caging apparently does not interrupt or redirect or rehabilitate. Moreover, from a 2021 study from a Bureau of Justice Statistics, Based on data from the 18 states that could provide such data, almost half of released prisoners had a probation or parole violation or an arrest for a new offense within three years that led to imprisonment. This percentage increased to about six in 10 within 10 years. It is overwhelmingly apparent from these statistics that the current system is not working. If by working, we intend crime deterrence or the increase in public safety. Moreover, these statistics do not take into account the collateral damage from incarceration, the economic and psychological harm to families and communities. This is especially so when we realize the disproportionate number of black and brown people arrested. While some communities are barely affected by the carceral system, others are ravaged by it. So we're now gonna turn to the Jewish textual tradition. We're going to look at two texts from the fifth to the sixth century Babylonian Talmud, which is at the cornerstone of the Jewish tradition. Okay, I'm going to... I just dropped into, I just dropped it to Pam and not to everyone. There's a link to a source sheet. Um, On the source sheet, uh, you can find the text on the source sheet. Um, The first story, the Talmudic story, is based on the rabbinic law that there are five types of damage that must be paid when a person wounds another. These damages are direct damage, pain and suffering, medical expenses, unemployment, and humiliation. When an animal causes damage to a person as opposed to a person, there's only direct damage. Damage is assessed in rabbinic law by assessing how much a person would be worth as a slave prior to and subsequent to their being wounded. So we're going to take a look at this first text, Bava Kama 84a. Bava Kama is the part of the Talmud that is uh, dedicated to torts of, of all kinds. So we're going to just read this text together and then talk about talk about it. It's, an, it's a story. So I'll put on my storytelling voice. There was a certain donkey that severed the hand of a child. Now, the, the, the important thing to say about this is that the story on a literary level revolves around the fact that the word for donkey and donkey driver is the same. And that's going to become a kind of a humorous uh, mistake, though very important for the story. So it's chamara, right? So there was a certain donkey that severed the hand of a child. The case came before Rav Papa Bar Shmuel. He said, go appraise the four types of payment for the child. Child was injured, we have to assess the four types of uh, the four things that we just mentioned before. Rava said to him, but didn't we learn in the mission that there are five types of payment? Rav Bar Shmuel said to him, I was referring to payments the responsible party is liable to pay other than direct damage. So there are four in addition to just direct damage. Abayas said to him, but was this not a donkey that caused this injury? And the owner of a donkey that causes injury pays only for the damage. Rav Papa Bar Shmuel said, go appraise for the child the value of his damage. They said to him, but doesn't the child need to be appraised as a slave? He said to them, go appraise him as a slave. So up until now, this is a normal, typical court case, um, donkey had severed the hand of a child. Apparently, uh, Rav Papa Bar Shmuel who was the head of the court didn't see what was going on in front of him, but somebody gave him a piece of paper, saw a child in front of him, read the piece of paper, and it said Khamaras. he didn't know if it was a donkey or a donkey driver, he thought it was a donkey driver, it was a person. And he said, okay, so let's figure out what the what the damage is, go and appraise the child for the four types of damage. Um, they they said to him, uh, no, uh, go appraise for the, uh, so he said to him, aren't there five types of damage? They said, yes clarify things, isn't it? Uh, but it's not a donkey driver, it's not a person, it's a donkey, it's an animal who did the damage. So if it's an animal who did the damage, then it's only one type. So he said, okay. Then they said, well, doesn't, don't we have to appraise the child as a slave? Assess him as what he'd be worth as a slave. So he said, so do that. Then at that moment, the father of the child said to them, I do not want my child to be appraised as a slave because this matter would demean him. They said to the father, but you are acting to the detriment of the child as he will not receive compensation for his injury. He said to them, when he matures, I will appease him with my own money rather than see him demean now. There are a number of interesting things that are going on in this story. First, there's a disconnect between what the rabbis and more to the point Rav Papa thinks he is discussing and the reality of the case. This is pointed out by a different rabbi, Abaye. Then Rav Papa isn't clear about how to assess the damages or more to the point, he is wrong about how to assess the damages. Finally, when it becomes clear that the method of assessment will harm the child all over again, the child's father steps in, takes control, and reframes the situation as involving a real human being who can both be harmed and taken care of by his father, which the father then does. This points out very strongly that victim advocacy does not necessarily support the needs of the victim, the victim in this case being the child, who ultimately his father had to step in and take him out of the system and take care of him himself within the community. You now take a look at the next text. This is from Brachot 10a. And this includes and stars one of the few named women in the Talmud, Burya. We will read the story together and think about the question what does Burya teach Rabbi Meir about justice? Does somebody want to come off? Um, mute and read the story so that it's not just my voice that we're hearing.
2: I could do that if you want.
1: Thank you so much.
2: You're welcome. There are these hooligans in Rabbi Mayer's neighborhood who caused him a great deal of anguish. Rabbi Mayer prays for mercy on them that they should die. <laughs> Rabbi Meyer's wife, Ruria, said to him, what is your thinking? On what basis do you pray for the death of these hooligans? Do you base yourself on the verse that it is written, let sin cease from the land? which you interpret to mean that the world would be better if the wicked were destroyed? But is it written, let sinners cease? Let sins sins cease and written? Let let sins cease is written. Moreover, go to the end of the verse where it says, and the wicked shall be no more. And If the transgressions shall cease, then the wicked will be no more. That is, they will no longer be wicked. Therefore, pray for mercy on them that they should repent. Rabbi Mayer saw that Burya was correct, and he prayed for mercy on them, and they repented.
1: Okay. But so this is a, a, a uh, I, I love this story. Um, Mayer had some hooligans in his neighborhood. We don't actually know the hooligans, the word for hooligans in, in the Aramaic is biryone, which could be everything from annoying, from, from people who are annoying to people who are, are criminals. Um, and uh, it says that they, annoyed, that they caused him a great deal of anguish in the translation, but mitsarule could be everything from just simple annoyance to torture. So it's unclear exactly what was going on, what the story was, and how much of that was Rabbi Mayer's perception. In my mind, I have this picture of him walking by the house next door is coming home from shul and people chucking beer bottles at him. But who knows? Um, so Rabbi Mayer got angry and prayed prayed for mercy on them is just a, a rabbinic phrase, which means that they that he prayed for them, that they should die. Rabbi Mayer's wife, Buria, said to him, well, what is your thinking? Is a generous way of translation. Is more like, what were you thinking? What is going on? What? Why did you? What, what reason did you want to? Uh, do, do you want them to die? And here, there is a dispute between Rabbi Meir and Buri about how to interpret this verse: "Let sins cease from the land, and there will be no more sinners." So the question here is, um, what does "chataim" mean? So Rabbi Meir was not an idiot, and Burya knew that Rabbi Meir was not an idiot, and Rabbi Meir knew that Chataim meant the same thing as meant um, uh, sin, meant sinners, right? And Burya knew that, because that's it, it, for various reason, grammatical reasons. But in Rabbinic Hebrew, Chataim are uh, sins and not sinners. So Buria was saying you should read it, not the way you should read it. If you have the possibility of reading the verse in a generous way, then you should read it in a generous way and say that let sins cease from the land rather than the sinners. So therefore that you have to change your thinking. And if sins cease, then wicked will be no more. Meaning if you stop people for if the people stop sinning, then they will not be sinners. And here is the heart of the dispute, which gets to our point. The question is, is a person defined by their last action or is a person defined or is or rather is a person larger than the last sin that they they did? So Rebbe Mayer is saying, look, they're sinning. So therefore, they are sinners. And Buria said, no, they're sinning. And if they stop sinning, then they will not be sinners. And so therefore, what you have to do is pray that they return in Tshuva, that they repent which essentially means give them the space to repent and become something else. And he did that, and they did that. So um, I'm going to uh, stop the share here, and then I'll stop the share here, and then I'm going to start it again in a minute. But I want to uh, see if there are any questions up until now on what where we're going and what we've done. You we can
2: just go off mute, come off mute. There aren't that many of us. We can- Come off mute or raise your hand. Okay.
1: So now that so so now that we've we've come here and basically what we've seen so far is that. The punitive understanding of, of, of justice, in which you know a sinner is a sinner, which in which the, the institutions want to punish the sinners, is not working. Um, and we see these stories, Ruby Mayer, and the story and, and the other story of the the uh, uh, Rav Papa and the child who is damaged. That there needs to be an intervention in that model. So what is the intervention that is possible? So I'm going to share my screen one more time. Um, just for a short
2: bit and
1: here's the alternative, the alternative is restorative justice, restorative justice. This is one definition of restorative justice. Restorative justice views crime as more than breaking the law. It also causes harm to people relationships and and the community. So a just response must address those harms as well as the wrongdoing. If the parties are willing, the best way to do this is to help them meet to discuss those harms and how to bring about a resolution. Other approaches are available if they're unable or unwilling to meet. Sometimes those meetings lead to transformational changes in their lives. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. Let's stop the share here. Um, okay, restorative justice model, therefore, is a model in which the victim <clears throat> is at the center. The goal of the exercise is to repair what was broken physically and psychologically. There is also a recognition that the offender is not totally defined by this one act and should be afforded the opportunity to overcome or repair the damage that comes from this one act. So now we're going to study together another text, which affords a framework for thinking about restorative justice from a surprising place, an eye for an eye. So we're going to take, we're going to go back to the uh, source sheet. So the following text comes at the end of an extensive discussion of the verse, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for foot. Ayan tahad ayin, shen tahad shen, yad tahad yad regal tahad raga. The discussion in the Talmud up to this point ultimately aims to prove that eye for an eye means a monetary payment rather than physically taking an eye when an eye is lost. And so that's where the discussion has gone up until now. We're not talking about eye for an eye, but rather monetary payment. And then we have the following we have um, it is taught. Does somebody else want to come off mute and read the text? And I'll interrupt you every couple of seconds.
3: So this is from Bava 84a. It is terrible, Rabbi. It is Rabbi, taught. It is taught, Rabbi Eliezer says, the verse that states an eye for an eye, Exodus 21, 24, is referring to an actual eye. Can it enter your mind that the verse is referring to an actual eye? Doesn't Rabbi Elazar understand the verse like all these previous authorities just cited who explained that this verse is referring to monetary payment?
1: Okay, so here, there, Rabbi Lezer, who's an early sage, um, and this comes after they said, like a long discussion, all proving or moving towards the fact that eye for an eye actually means money. And then Rabbi Lezer says, no, an eye for an eye means an actual eye. If somebody takes out your eye, you take out their eyes. So the 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 anonymous uh, co- uh, commentator in the Talmud says, can you really think that the verse referring to an actual eye, doesn't Rabbi Lezer understand the verse, like all these previous authorities, what is he doing with the rest of the yeah, subject? He was here. We were just learned through this whole conversation. Where was he? Did he just like not come to the to the study hall that day? Why? How could he say that it's an actual eye? Okay. Please continue.
3: Rabbi said in response, Rabbi Elazar means to say that the court does not appraise the injured party as a slave to assess the compensation for the injury. And they said to raba rather like whom does the court appraise the injured party if you say that the court appraises him like a freeman does a freeman have monetary value rather
1: okay, okay. so I'll, I'll interrupt you there for a second so Rabba's trying to so Raba's trying to Raba's trying to figure out um what Rebelezer means because he can't be that he's contradicting everybody that came before so he says he he suggests that Rebelezer is actually just opposed to uh, appraising the injured party as a slave, like we saw before in the story with the father and the son. And the father said, I don't want my son appraised as a slave because that's demeaning, that re-injures him. So maybe that's what he means. He says he's not going to appraise the injured party as a slave. A bias is terrible. So how else are you going to appraise the injured party? And here's an interesting principle. A free, a free person doesn't have a monetary value. right? So how could you, you can't appraise a person as a free person because you, you don't sell a free person. Back in those days, they lived in a slave culture. And so unfortunately, they did sell people into slavery. But here, so you uh, can't appraise a person like a free person because a free person doesn't have monetary value. Keep going, rather.
3: Rather, Rav Ashi said, Rabbi Elazar means to say that the court does not appraise the injured party as if he were going to be sold as a slave, but rather they appraise the one who caused him damage. The court appraises how much the latter's value would be be reduced were he to sustain the same injury he caused to the injured party, and he pays this amount as compensation.
1: Great, thank you so much. Relezer claims that eye for eye means equal and identical compensation. The claim is scandalous for the anonymous voice of the Talmud, both on its own and in light of the fact that every other sage holds that eye for eye refers to monetary compensation. Rabbah and Abaye are brought in to domesticate Rebbe Lezer's claim. There is no intention for an eye to be removed to compensate for the eye already damaged. However, the performance of the equal compensation, which is demanded in the phrase an eye for an eye, is retained in Rabbi Lezer's statement as mediated through Abaye and Rabbah. It is the offender, who is assessed as an enslaved person to see what damage a similar injury would cause him. Rabbi Ashi's claim is that Rebelezer retains the original intent of the verse by moving the focus of the compensation from victim to offender. It is the offender's arm, eye, et cetera, which must be assessed to arrive at the appropriate compensation. This exchange between Rabbah and Abaye is very illuminating for our understanding of restorative justice. Rava comments on the party line originally inscribed in the Mishnah that generates this entire discourse that we assess the victim as an enslaved person to ascertain the differential between his prior value and his current value. According to Rava, Rabbi Eliezer's position is different since he does not demand that the victim be assessed as an enslaved person. To this Abhayar responds, what choice do we have? A free person cannot be assessed since a free person has no price. The essential characteristic Abaya claims of a free person is that they are not chattel, while the essential characteristic of an enslaved person is that they are chattel. The only way to assess a person, or perhaps the very act of a monetary valuation of a person, assumes that the person would not be, would be an enslaved person in the transaction. Abaya's claim is not only an economic claim, it is also a moral claim, a claim based on values. Abaya's objection to Rava admits that the operation of assessment as an enslaved person is an assault on the humanity of the person assessed. Since the assessment imputes slavery to a free person, Ravashi's concluding statement accords with this insight. We have no desire to again assault the humanity of the injured party. We would only reduce the imbalance of power of the offender over the victim by having them experience what it might be like to be assaulted in the way that the victim was assaulted. The structure of this compensation enables us not to to not recreate the assault on the victim when we are supposed to be offering relief. So what Rebilezer is saying is that actually we have to bring this back to the fact that because of the assault, the victim has lost his power. The victim is now less powerful and we have to bring him back to the point where there is an equal playing field. And that's what we do when we look at the, um, the, uh, the, the assailant and say, what would you do in order to not have this happen to you? Or how do we get back to even? So I wanna take a look now at one other um, uh, source, which is um, down in from Maimonides, it's the next source on this next, it's source number seven here. Um, and that's from Mishnah Torah, Maimonides guide. Um, actually, let's go back to source to number two, to source number six. This is from the laws of repentance. Maimonides was the first person to actually codify uh, the laws of repentance in one place, uh, taking them from various places around the Talmud. And he says follow, the following, what is repentance? The sinner shall cease sinning and remove sin from his thoughts and wholeheartedly conclude not to revert back to it. Even as it is said, let the wicked forsake their way. So too. Shall they be remorseful on what was past? even as it is said, surely after that I was turned, I repented. And the one who knows all secrets that is God shall be able to testify that the person will not return to repeat that sin again. According to what is said, say unto him, neither will call any more the work of our hands our gods. It is moreover essential that the confession shall be spoke by spoken words of his lips, and that all that which he concluded in his heart shall be formed in speech. So what is the the process of repentance? Um, The process of repentance is that a person first stops sinning, then removes the sin from their thoughts, um, concludes not to sin again is number three, Um, to the extent that, um, and then uh, B is remorseful, is sorry for what they did, To the extent that God, in other words, that this is so true that God would be able to testify that they actually um, repented and turned away from from the sin. Now, then he adds in in a little further on in chapter two, neither repentance nor the day of atonement atone for any safer sins committed between man and God. So up until now, we're only talking about um, sins between man and God. Um, which is atoned for by yom kippur or the day of atonement for instance one ate forbidden food or had forbidden coition and the like so if you had uh, forbidden sex or forbidden food ate forbidden food so yom kippur is good for that but sins between a person and a person for instance one injures one's neighbor or curses one's neighbor or plunders them or offends them in like manner it is never absolved until he makes, until one makes restitution of what one owes and begs the forgiveness of one's neighbor. And although one makes institution of the monetary debt, one is obliged to pacify him and beg his forgiveness. So it's not enough to make monetary restitution. One also must must pacify the, the victim and beg their forgiveness. Even if they only offended with words, one is obliged to appease and implore him till he be forgiven by him. If if the neighbor refuses a committee of three friends to forgive him, he should bring um, to implore and beg of him. If he still refuses, um, bring a second and even a third committee. And if he remains obstinate, he may leave him to himself and pass on for the sin then rests upon him who refuses forgiveness. Okay. And so um, what what Maimonides is pointing out here is that when one is talking about some kind of an offense between people, then uh, the ritual forgiveness of Yom Kippur is not enough, but rather it has to be person to person. And uh, in addition to even paying back or monetary restitution, uh, what you have to do is is actually ask forgiveness and get forgiveness. Um, So this is actually what restorative justice is. Um, I just one more slide and then we'll, we'll, we'll. So this is from Danielle Sered's amazing book um, until we reckon about restorative justice. And actually at the end of uh, this class will, there'll be a, a, a restorative justice reading and resources sheet, and this is listed on there. So this is her, this is her steps. And this is basically a, a, an expanded and improved um, version of what we just read in Maimonides. The first step is acknowledging responsibility for one's actions. And this is amazingly important, right? When when when, when harm is committed, and this is the different, this is also a, a, a serious difference between restorative justice and punitive justice. When harm is committed, if you, you arrest somebody and convict them and send them to jail, there at no point in that process does the victim and the offender come together face-to-face and the, the, the offender gets the chance to ask forgiveness or say they're sorry or take responsibility for their actions. And taking responsibility uh, for their actions is something that they could evade the whole time they're in jail. Because the whole time you're in jail, you're just being punished by somebody else, which has nothing to do with, your, with the victim. And you could just say, well, you know, it's not my fault. All these things happen. So the first step is acknowledging responsibility for one's actions. The second step is acknowledging the impact of one's actions on others, meaning I didn't only do this. I didn't only steal something. I didn't only hit somebody, but that action, those actions um, had longstanding implications, whether it was the fact that, you know, if it's with a store, then uh, if the store loses business, it goes out of business, it can't make money. The people who run the store can't make a living, if it's with a person, there's trauma, if it's all kinds, of all the, all the impact of one's actions on other people. And beyond that, it's the fact that if a person is violent in a community, then the community can't exist. Step three is expressing genuine remorse. And that's what it, what it sounds like. And step four, and this is really important, doing sorry. Rather than saying that one is sorry, which is step three, but doing sorry, taking actions to repair harm to the degree possible and guided when feasible by the people harmed. So this is not only saying, not saying I'm sorry, but how can I make this right to you? Or as Reverend Lezer said, how can we bring this back to even? How can I restore to you your, the power that I took from you when I attacked you? And step five is no longer committing similar harm. And step five is, is that's for the rest of your life, right? No longer committing um, similar harm ever again. Okay. So there, there are different types of restorative justice models and there are a number of them on the source sheet with links to organizations that employ the different models. Um, I just wanna, before we finish, I wanna play a clip. I hope I'm gonna be able to do this um, of a uh, f- from Sujatha Baliga who's a, a restorative justice practitioner in San Francisco. Um, I'm going to-
4: ...about a stolen car. And uh, we reached out uh, to the young person and, and he pretty quickly took responsibility for it um, and, and was very open to meeting with his victim and making it right and explained that he was really poor, but he was willing to get a job and try to figure out you know, how, to, how to do right by the victim. So we reached out to the victim and the victim um, was extremely unhappy that the case had been diverted. She actually knew a little bit about diversion because she worked for a law enforcement uh, type entity and um, was adamant that she had been out of pocket $4,000 in costs because of this car. and. Uh, Wanted to see four thousand dollars, and so in meeting with the young person and his and his family, his mother is undocumented, working multiple jobs. They were living in 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 the most um, in in in, a, in in the kinds of poverty that we just shouldn't have in the United States. With so many other people's children living with them just to have a place to eat, and I knew that this mother and this young man were not coming up with four thousand dollars, and so. Uh, The person I was training at the time asked me, "So are we going to send the case back because there's no way this woman's getting what she wants?" So I go back to her and I say, "Would you have any interest in doing this, even if four thousand dollars might not be the outcome? Would you? Is there some other reason to do this?" And she'd brought a friend with her that day, and he said, "I want us to. I would really love for you to move forward." And she said, "Yeah, I would. I just want to meet with this kid and tell him that what he did wasn't okay." And and her friend said, "I really really like to meet with this young man too." And so. On the day of the conference, um, it was very powerful. Her supporter, the person who had come with her, um, at one point as the, the youth who would stolen the car uh, couldn't remember what color the car was and it became evident that he would stolen many cars and the victim is getting angrier and angrier and you're never going to learn your lesson. And at this point um, her friend leans in and he says, I know you. And my heart stopped because I was like, oh, we usually research these things better. And I had no idea there was a pre-existing relationship between these two uh, parties. And, and he says, I know you cause I used to be you. And he proceeds to tell the most powerful story about how he himself got caught up in stealing cars and it derailed his life and how he got his life back on track. And it was as if the rest of the room disappeared and this young man and, um, and, and uh, this, this man who turned his life around engage in a dialogue about how does one turn one's life around, and, and he says, you know, you just you have to stop hanging out with your homies uh, in the way that you used to, but don't cut them out of your don't cut them out of your heart. Just don't include them in every aspect of your life. So you show up for the baptism, but you don't stay for the after party, right? And you always say, I got to get to work, and they respect that. So. So what makes you happy? What do you, what do you believe in, you know, about yourself? Or what are you good at? And the kid puffs up and he says, you know, I'm a really good artist. And his mother starts laughing. And she says, you can't pay this woman back $4,000 with your art. And just then the victim jumps in and she says, oh, yes, he can. Yes, he can, actually. Uh, she was so moved by this dialogue, right, that she says, um, if he paints me a Tinkerbell as tall as I am, she was about five feet tall. As tall as I am, I'll forgive all the debt. And, and we're all looking at each other like a Tinkerbell. I'm sorry, did she say Tinkerbell? So I start taking notes and she's describing the exact Tinkerbell and what color the Tinkerbell needed to be. And just it had to be an old school one without too much cleavage. So she's very particular about the Tinkerbell. And the kid is really excited, but he's also like, I don't know how I would canvas and did it in what she's describing. I'm like, we'll find you a community artist person who will help you with this. And so I was thinking of my friend, Evan, who I knew would definitely be interested in doing this. And, um, and so uh, ultimately the young man does uh, paint this. Just, within a few weeks, he, he got a job, uh, raised enough money for all the art supplies. He wanted to do it himself. Um, painted the most amazing rendition of Tinkerbell on canvas, and the victim asked him to bring it to her home and help him install it, you know? And, um, and then he ended up getting involved with other community art projects and actually getting involved with the program uh, at Community Works where he had, had been involved in this case, you know, and just uh, helping out other kids who'd gotten in trouble. So his life turned around completely and he stayed out of trouble um, consistently after that, and, and the Tinkerbell was really beautiful. But I think what's really, when people ask what do victims want, you know, it's different in every case. And I always think you never know, it might be Tinkerbell, like you have no idea what is gonna leave a crime victim satisfied. So some people might say, oh, that's soft on crime, he stole a car and he gets to paint something. But if that's what the victim wanted, and that's what keeps him out of trouble for the rest of his life, we should be really happy about Tinkerbell.
1: So that's kind of it. It's uh, that restorative justice is a victim-centered um, process in which the offender and the victim are brought together to reestablish a sense of community. And so that the victim and the, the offender can come together um, and in that way, uh, resolve and restore um, the sense of justice that was there prior rather than focusing on punishing the offender. That's what I got. Questions?
3: Thank you so much, Rabbi.
1: Um, Very, very interesting. How do we see this uh, playing out? And do you think that we can actually come into a place of restorative justice in in a society here in the United States where we hyper-criminalize and we hyper-punish? I know that we even uh, prep our our kids, right? I, my partner is a music therapist and a, a therapist by trade, and uh, she was talking to me about how we almost set our kids up for this system where we see if a child were to spill some milk, we then ground them for some milk. We overpunish. So how do you see this restorative justice playing out in, in our society as it is right now? So I see this as, as not a specific, not a, a just at one point. I think that what you brought up is a perfect example uh, that we have to start in schools. We have to start with kids like when you have, you know, when Johnny takes away uh, Jimmy's blocks instead of giving Johnny a timeout, we have a circle and Johnny and Jimmy get to talk about what happens. And then we all come together as a community and we we, we figure out how do we make that right. Right. And these in other words, we have to train kids in just like when, you know, if if somebody spills the milk, then they don't get milk or they don't get dessert or or, or they stand in the corner, whatever it is, Um, they learn something. They learn something very important, as you said. They learn that, uh, you know, if you do something wrong, you get punished and you have to just avoid punishment. You have to, um, rather than learning that there are ways to resolve conflict, um, there are ways to resolve conflict, which don't include what we think of as punishment, but actually, what they do is that they restore the sense of community, um, and and this is from the smallest to the largest. So, um, Daniel Sered, whose book I mentioned, works with uh, uh, with uh, victims of victims and offenders of violent crimes, um, and in you know and 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 the ultimate goal is is an abolitionist goal. The ultimate goal is that this would be able to be scaled so that we stop caging people. Um, Now that requires a lot of things. First of all, it's part of a, you know, it requires a lot of investment in educators, in communities in community centers where these things can happen. Imagine if instead of like in Los Angeles, I don't know what the story, I don't know what's going on in in Arizona, but in Los Angeles there's an enormous amount of money, which is spent on cops um, in the public schools. So imagine if you take that line, that budget line for the, the cops, which they're called resource officers, which is a, one of those great euphemisms. You take that line away and instead you pay a restorative justice practitioner to come in and teach kids how to do restorative justice, to have restorative justice club and restorative justice council and you know all this kind of stuff. And um, so that it becomes part of the culture of the school. And... And aside from interrupting the school to prison pipeline, which in, in and of itself is really, really important, but what that what happens is that when, when, when kids then go out onto the street, they know that, you know, if, if you took my, you stole my sneakers, then the answer is not to kill you, but the answer is then to talk to you, right? The answer is not, you know, so that, because that becomes part of the culture in large and they see that, and we have to, you know, spend, expend resources, to get the community involved, to get the adults involved, to have you know have parents nights instead of you know having parents nights where where you just like sit down and and, and the teachers tell you how many books you have to buy and and how much the new iPad is going to cost or whatever it is, um, it's actually uh, saying these are the practices of our school, and we expect you just like in language in language schools we expect you to practice with your children. We expect you to practice this with your children. Or we expect you to to learn um, restorative justice and have parent circles, and so I think that this is you know, and then and that builds out, right? And th- those are the expanding circles until ultimately we have a society that that does this. But we have to, it has to come up from the bottom, and we have to have, and our priorities, which are are which are reflected in our budgeting, because the budget is ultimately a moral document, has to also back up these
2: priorities.
0: So, um, Ravardier, why do you think in America, we moved from a consequentialist model to a deontological model? A model that understood there are many parties and many ways to resolve conflicts to one of just desserts, that we want to whack someone for the sake of whacking them? What happened in American culture and American history that we got to this place?
1: Well, I think the, I th- I think the, the, the answer is that uh, American culture is based on, on an ontological demonization of large sections of the population. Um, the Native Americans, you had to fi- you had to decide that they were subhuman in order to be able to kill them and kick them off land. And Africans and, you know, to kidnap Africans and sell them as, as chattel, you had to decide, you had to create a whole system of, of racialized capitalism, of racial, you know, where, where Africans were, were not humans. Um, they they didn't even have a history. They belonged to a continent. They didn't belong to a place. And, they, and, and, and then you could sell them. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have families. And, and so once you move, once you go to a place where a certain people are um, defined uh, by birth as being lesser, as being subhuman, um, then it's easy. To defy, to to move that into other uh, other areas of American culture to say that criminals are just criminals. I mean, people are not people don't commit crimes, right? This is what Burio is teaching Reverend Mayor. Um, Burio was saying it, people commit crimes. They're not people are not criminals. But Brian Stevenson, you know, saying you can't don't judge a person by the worst day in their lives. Um, there are people and people change, and that's what repentance is all about. But I think what we got stuck in is that. So here's on a, 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 a simplistic way, but I think really uh, also true that uh, the culture of abolition says that, no, that everybody is worthwhile, which is actually very based in, in Jewish culture. That Revo, uh, you know, Revelation told us that everybody is worthwhile of God's blessing, uh, that everybody was created in the image of God. Our culture tells us that certain people, for certain people to succeed, other people have to be put down. So in order for people to, Justify to themselves why they have so much while other people have so little, or why they're walking free while other people are caged. They have to come up with an ideology which says that those people deserve to be caged. Those people are don't have um, the same uh, uh, r- the same privileges and responsibilities that we have. And now I want to, we shouldn't f- feel totally bad. I mean, we should feel bad, but we shouldn't feel totally bad that this is just us. Um, Plato did the same thing and Aristotle did the same thing. They also lived in a slave culture. And even though it was self-contradictory in a lot of what they said, they had to come up with this notion of having a slave had a slave soul. Because otherwise it doesn't make any sense that, a, that, that one human being is free and another is, is, is enslaved. So people are unfortunately very good at uh, doing this at, at ontolo- saying that somebody is ontologically different as somebody is, is by nature worse. By nature, a criminal. And I think that, that part of the culture of restorative justice and the culture of abolition is breaking out of that and actually seeing the divine image in every single person.
0: Amazing. Okay, friends, time for one more question. Okay, with that, Rabarye, we thank you so much for this amazing presentation. Do you have any closing thoughts you want to share with us?
1: Um, this is all, well, this is just a first of all, thank you very much. Secondly, I love the fact that somebody's screen name is "I love Tara," um, and and finally, this work is everybody's work. It's 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 not it's both on the smallest scale and on the larger scale, and um, it's a community. It's it's work in a community. And thanks a lot.
0: Amazing! Thank you all so much. We wish everyone a wonderful day. We hope you'll join us to learn with P- Professor Paul Franks tomorrow. Um, the legacy of German Judaism and some questions for ethically engaged Jews today. Professor at Yale, who's gonna uh, look at Torah and Derech uh, Eretz with us tomorrow. Thank you so much, Rabbi Aryeh Cohen, and thank you all for joining us.
2: Thank you. Bye.